This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Topic is HSR absenteeism uh, report the other day, 19%. Uh, of course, uh, L, uh, HSR lobbying at this point to, uh, you know, they want they wanted to control the LRT. They want to run the system. This is obviously not boding well for that. Who is, where do we direct this to? Where do we direct uh, the displeasure? Is it the union's fault? Is it the operators? Is it the city's? Where is the conflict starting from? Let's bring in Dan McKinnon, General Manager, Public Works, City of Hamilton. He is with us now. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Hi there. Uh, we were just talking to uh, Eric Tuck, the uh, union president. Uh, his first question to you, he suggested, was that uh, this was all trending upward in a positive direction until uh, Dave Dixon left and the new operator, or, or sorry, the new director uh, came into place and then things started to trend uh, downwards. Uh, is that what you've noticed in all of this? Uh, well, certainly, I've uh, I took over my job about uh, 14 months ago, and as as you're likely aware, Debbie the uh, Debbie Dalvadova, the director of transit, she arrived just over a year ago. Mm-hmm. But certainly, the data that we have in our system tells a different story. Um, you know, back to 2005, our absenteeism rate was down around eight percent, and I think generally speaking, there's been a steady march upward ever since. And uh, I think what's happened this year is that, you know, we were hovering around 14, 15%, and then we've uh, gone up to about 19%. And I think the reason it's become so, uh, so you know, present in, in everybody's consciousness is because we, we seem to have hit a tipping point where our ability to call in overtime or get, call in drivers on overtime hasn't made up that difference between, you know, people working regular time and the need that we have out on the street. So, so I guess the shorter answer, short answer is not. Do I agree? No. Um, our uh, our data in our system here is showing us a very different story where it's it's been uh, it's been going the wrong way for a long time, and uh, so that's what we're focused on. We're we've got a lot of people huddled together, uh, have been over the last week and a half, uh, trying to crunch through the data to see what's the root cause of the absenteeism. But uh, the uh, there's no question there's a direct correlation between the absenteeism and the cancellation of service out on the street. So what is the cause of the absenteeism then? Well, I, I'm certainly no labor relations expert, but I can tell you that when you start talking about absenteeism, it's a very complex subject. Uh, absenteeism can happen for a variety of reasons, whether somebody's off on long-term illness. Uh, it, can, it even includes things like parental leave. It can be a WSIB injury. Uh, one of the things that's really difficult for us to manage is when people call in the day of uh, a shift and then they're, they're, uh, they're, you know, they're, making, they're not available to work. That is a real challenge for us, and I can tell you, We've been receiving a, uh, a heck of a lot of those calls in the last four or five months. And so it's very difficult for us to respond to that. And we've been making dozens and dozens of phone calls every day trying to replace those operators uh, by using people who are, who are willing to come in for overtime. Uh, the union will say that uh, you're, just, you're understaffed and that these people are simply burned out. And if, if somebody is away, it's a case of, of, of you know, working more overtime that they're not necessarily... Uh, you know, uh, equipped to do at this point, obviously shortage of drivers. Uh, your thoughts on burnout? This is just pure burnout. Uh, too, too little drivers trying to do too much. Um, yeah, again, I'll, I point to the evidence. I don't think we're seeing that with the, uh, with the evidence that we have in our system. The, uh, the, there's a small group of drivers who are quite happy to work as much overtime as you can give them. And uh, those are the folks who seem to have the fewest number of sick days. So, that statistic alone kind of uh, suggests to me that that it's not a if it is burnout, it's certainly not widespread, and it's not happening as a result of the people who seem to be working the most. 
So what is the cause? Why is it happening? I mean, uh, you know, you can't contribute it to all those different factors when you see a spike. So uh, as you mentioned, in such a short period of time, uh, again, um, the union president was alluding to uh, the new manager of operations and, 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 and somehow just not having the liaison between uh, the union and management, that there's just low morale there. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I, you know, like I said, Debbie's been here for just, just around a year. Uh, the evidence that we have in our system here suggests that this situation has been escalating for a number of years now. And um, so I, I don't know that how Debbie could be responsible for it when it was uh, occurring long before she got here. I think that uh, there was uh, no question that there was some, there's been a fair bit of change in the leadership ranks at the, uh, the HSR. We've had, uh, you know, three directors over the last uh, four, three or four years. We had a, 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 an acting director for a short period of time. Uh, we've had some dramatic changes in the leadership ranks there as a result of retirements and uh, other folks leaving the city. So, uh, you know, the one thing I will say is there's been a fair bit of change. Um, and I can tell you also that one of the things that we're trying to do at the city is create a culture of accountability. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I hired Debbie when, uh, when, when I brought her here was that I thought that Debbie was going to be able to create a culture of accountability, but also treat people like human beings and try to create a healthy and safe workplace. And um, you know, we, we've got lots of work to do in that area, but I can tell you that all the things she started to put in place, I think, are, are going to pay off uh, in spades down the road. Uh, you know, when you talk about culture, it's not something you can turn around on a dime. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you inherit one that is maybe not as, uh, not as productive as it could be, um, you know, you're, kind of, you're working just a little bit just to get back to the start line. And, and I think that's where we are right now. So, um, I'm get, you know, I'm relying on the evidence uh, and, and the data that we have in our system. And while it doesn't tell you everything, it certainly tells a compelling story that this isn't this isn't a new issue, but it certainly seems to have hit some kind of a tipping point here where, um, you know, the ability to to uh, kind of make up the difference on overtime is, is we're really getting stretched there now. And at the end of the day, um, our number one priority is, is our customer service. We're letting a lot of uh, transit riders down right now and that's uh, quite frankly that's killing us we don't want to see that happen and very close behind that is uh, our operators we know that improving the customer experience and, and reliability of our service is good for our operators too because it makes it makes their passengers a lot happier so uh you know we can point to a lot of things that we've done over the last uh, certainly over the last 12 months to improve both of those things but it's going to take a while to kind of work our way out of this. Is this, uh, do you think this is some sort of backlash against that accountability that you're talking about? I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I haven't seen anything uh, definitive that would suggest that. I think that, you know, if, anecdotally, you know, that, that, that's been put out there a number of times. Is, that, is, that, is this just some kind of a reaction to, uh, you know, more accountability in the workforce? You know, I I think your listeners are bright people. They can maybe uh, draw their own conclusions from that. I'm hesitant to say one way or the other. I have not seen anything definitive that would suggest that, but I know from my own experience, uh, I've been at the city for 23 years. I think the work that we've done over the last five or so years around accountability, uh, some people love it, they embrace it, and other people resist. So is that a, is it a possibility? I guess it is. Um, but again, I, I don't know that I could say that with 100% certainty. Is the HSR short-staffed, uh, Dan? Uh, uh, the union was saying, uh, Eric Tuck was saying 14 are in training, but they've lost like 25. Uh, so the reality is um, by the end of this year, we will have recruited um, 37 new operators, uh, and we're on track to have lost about 23 or 24. So... Um, recognizing that, you know, anybody can put up their hand at any moment and say they're leaving or they're retiring. 
we anticipate to have lost about 23 or 24 this year, and we'll, we're on track to, rep- to, to have hired 37. So, uh, again, the math, I'm following the math, have great faith in math, and uh, that, just, that just is not inconsistent with some of the stories that I'm hearing out there. So, uh, at this point, HSR is hiring. They are, is that safe to say, or are you full right now? Are you, do you need more drivers? Where are you on that moving forward as far as operators? So if, if I may, I'll take you back to your previous question. So, you, so, so the question, and it's a great question, do we have enough drivers? I can't answer that question until you tell me how much absenteeism should I plan for. Hmm. Historically, when we were around 12%, 13%, do we have enough drivers? I, I would say that absolutely we have enough drivers. Uh, do we have enough now? It appears that uh, probably not because we're up around 19%. And that you know the absenteeism is the elephant in the room. We it, this all comes back to the absenteeism, and if I have to plan around 19 or 20 percent absenteeism, which in my view is abnormally high, uh, then I'm going to have to get some more resources because I just can't continue to rely on people to be willing uh, to work overtime. It's not sustainable, and over the long haul, it's not fair to the operators. And we and we want to we want the operators to be uh, we want to be fair to them. Uh, it's a tough job. Um, you know, they're the they're the they're the, the ambassadors uh, to the community from the city. And uh, we got to put them in a situation to be successful. And uh, I think the absenteeism rate right now is driving us to a place where we're not able to put them in a position to be successful. Uh, your thoughts on HSR and LRT and where that discussion is now? Uh, it's with the province. And uh, I think, the, you know, we're, uh, we're like everybody else, we're awaiting um, what their decision is going to be. And as staff, we'll take direction from council and uh Whatever that direction is, we will do our very best to, to make sure it happens uh, successfully. Does this bode well for that argument, though? I mean, if you've got a high absenteeism and you're applying to uh, operate LRT? Well, I, I, think that, uh, I think your listeners can draw that conclusion themselves. I mean, uh, the optics aren't good. What is the solution here, Dan? How do you move forward from this? Well, I mean, in the short term, we've got some short-term strategies to try to, to, try to mitigate kind of this crisis that we're in right now we're not accepting any new charters as you mentioned we've got some new operators coming on uh we're going to be reporting back to council with some specific requests around things that we can do for our complement and uh and we're also we're constantly looking at ways to find efficiencies in our in our service so that we can get more uh more service hours out of all of our resources so we're continuing to do that over the long term we've got to get at the root cause of some of this absenteeism and we're uh, we're working a little bit shorthanded in that respect right now. We, uh, the, you know, the person that we would have just dedicated to analyzing this on a regular basis, we're uh, we're actually recruiting for that right now because that position, for whatever reason, uh, was not in our complement for the last couple of years. So, um, I, I think we need some time um, in order to analyze this and and resolve it properly. We have to do it thoughtfully, um, and um, uh, mm-hmm. you know we'll do that. We just need some time. You know, it's it, it is unfortunate because I think. Uh, you know, there's uh, city council has put their money where their mouth is. They have invested tens of millions of dollars into the system over the last number of years. We're in the middle of a $72 million capital investment uh, in partnership with the federal government. We have put a tremendous amount of investment into transit, and uh, we're not seeing the results that we need to see. So we have to take a little different approach to it. And uh, absenteeism in this current situation is certainly one of the issues that we need to get at. But uh, for the return on investment that... Uh, that was expected here. It's not happening, and we got to find a way to make that happen. Dan McKinnon is with us, General Manager of Public Works, City of Hamilton. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Ryan McGreal, uh, editor Raise the Hammer. He's with us now. Uh, Ryan, your thoughts on all of this? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I mean, 
I don't. I, I think the scale of the problem has probably been surprising to to a lot of people. But the the idea or the fact that there's uh, a culture of dysfunction uh, in the HSR, you know, in, in how it's been managed over the years, I don't think that should be a surprise to anybody who's been paying attention. This is a system that has been uh, starved for resources year after year, continuously for three decades now. Uh, it hasn't been a priority for council. But wait a sec, uh, Ryan. Dan's just talked. Dan McKinnon, general manager of Public Works, is talking about how much money, how many millions of dollars they've the city's poured into this system. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, in terms of, of the city's own increased um, levy money, uh, the city hasn't done anything for the first three years of the uh, the 10-year transit plan. And in fact, council voted during the budget process earlier this year to suspend the 10-year transit strategy. This was supposed to be the first year the city actually kicked some city money into the program, and councillors voted to put it off for a year. So obviously, Dan is a manager of the city. He, he's not in a position where he can disparage council. Uh, I'm not, so I'm going to. And uh, they um, they have not been, I mean, you know, they, they've been putting the provincial gas tax into transit because they have to. The federal gas tax has been, which doesn't have to go to transit. Uh, most cities spend it on transit. That's what it's for. But uh, the, the Hamilton has been spending that money on filling potholes instead. Uh, I'm sorry, but the, the city has not been uh, adequately funding transit for a long time. Council makes uh, encouraging noises about transit at various times, but when it comes to the actual budget, they continue to kick the football down the uh, the field year after year. So uh, at the end of the day, you've got the city and the HSR. Is this all about years of underfunding? I think that's a big part of it. I think it's underfunding. It's it's a culture of neglect and dysfunction that uh, it starts at the top and works its way down. You know, there's um, uh, transit has never really been, or at least for at least the past 30 years, the city of Hamilton has not treated transit the way real cities treat transit systems, which is a legitimate way of getting around that should be usable and valuable to a lot of people. And Wait, Hamilton, how can we be having this discussion, Ryan, when we're on the cusp of building an LRT? We're supposed to be like, you know, this is progressive thinking. And again, you know, a lot of people have brought up, geez, we can't get the transit system fixed. What are we doing with LRT? Uh, this sort of drives that point home. I mean, there's there, if there's dysfunction in the system, how is this going to work? I, I'm, I, if, I'm, if I'm the province... You know, if I'm Metrolinx, uh, you know, I'm looking very closely at the situation because, of course, council voted a couple of months ago to ask uh, if uh, the HSR can operate the LRT system. Now, if, if the province decides to go ahead with that, it means they have to start the request for proposals all over again because the current RFP, which completed uh, several months ago, is based on a uh, consortium building the system and then operating it for 30 years. So if we want to take operation out of that, it changes the RFP, so we have to start over, so we lose several months. It's been two months that we've been waiting for the province to get back to us on this. And, uh, you know, I can understand why the province might be inclined to want to let the HSR operate it. It, it makes sense. It's a good idea in principle. But again, if I'm the province, I'm not going to be handing the keys to a billion-dollar investment to a city government that can't handle the bus system it has right now. So I'm going to be looking very carefully and listening very carefully to find out what kind of assurances are council and senior management providing to let the province and let the public know that they understand the real issue and that they're taking concrete steps to get this stuff addressed 
so we don't end up with an LRT system which looks great but can't function because we can't get people to sit in the chairs. Well, we certainly can't have a 19% absentee rateism, an absenteeism rate of 19% as well. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you, are, are you are, are you siding with the HSR in here in the sense that you know they're just they they are burnt out, they're fried, they just don't have the resources they need to operate the system? Is that is that is that the, the reason here? Oh, absolutely. This, this is a classic mismanagement death spiral. I mean, the more the system is underfunded, the more you overwork and overpush people. They start to get injured. They start to get burned out. They start to get illnesses. And then, they, you know, absenteeism starts going up. So the people who are still showing up are under even more pressure to put in long hours. Like, do you want to be sitting on a bus that's operated by somebody who's been working for 70 hours? Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's crazy. So you lay, you lay this at the feet of the city as opposed to the HSR and the workers themselves? It ultimately always comes down to good management or bad management. A well-managed group of people who are respected and given the resources and tools they need to do their jobs properly are going to do their jobs well. Will you know, L- people, oh, sorry, go ahead. Will, will LRT change this discussion? Because obviously we're moving to a modern transit-type system. I mean, it would make sense that this is the time to fix it all. Uh, does, this, does the LRT change this discussion in any way? Well, I think I would hope, uh, I mean, I would hope that LRT wouldn't be necessary to change the conversation, but obviously uh, the simple fact of the matter hasn't been enough. I think the fact that LRT is coming adds an, a, a, an additional sense of urgency that, you know, it's not just this kind of poor, neglected um, transit system, which has been treated for years as a kind of a social service for people who are too poor, poor, too poor to buy a car, Instead of cities that treat transit as a legitimate way of getting around, uh, now we have this major investment coming down, and if we screw it up, we're going to be in big trouble. We're going to lose a lot of money on it. Again, Ryan, I have a hard time understanding how uh, you know a city is treating the transit system like a second-class citizen when they're trying to get LRT. Well, again, I mean, the city is trying to get... Well, you, you, I mean, you were there, right? You remember how difficult it was to get a majority of councillors mm-hmm. just to say... Uh, sure, thank you, when the province offered to pay 100% of the capital cost and uh, from the looks of it, most of the operating cost of an LRG system, we could barely say yes to not having to pay a penny in capital cost toward this. Council doesn't even want to spend the province's money, let alone their own, on transit. <laughs> Ryan McGrill has been with his editor, Raise the Hammer, and of course, uh, check it out and uh, hear more of Ryan and, and staff and such. Uh, where do you see this going, Ryan? I mean, obviously, we've hit a tipping point here. Uh, drivers are fried. Uh, it's to the point where we have a 19% absenteeism. How does this move forward, uh, especially with LRT on the horizon? Sure. Well, I mean, some of that is going to depend on uh, what the province uh, decides once they finally let us know what they've decided about who's going to operate LRT. Um, but this, uh, but, cert- but- this certainly isn't going to help that discussion. Well, it's it's certainly going to clarify the, the issue, I think, for the province and for the city. But, uh, you know, and, and again, I, I can see the arguments before, for, I can see the arguments against, but if the province decides to trust the city with running LRT, I think they're going to have to be very, very careful in that contract that they establish in order to make sure that the city understands what its responsibilities are to this system and understands its responsibilities to the people who are going to be using and riding on the system and that the city doesn't basically have an opportunity to mismanage it the way they've been mismanaging transit in the past. RaiseTheHammer.org to find out more. RaiseTheHammer.org. Ryan McGreal, editor, has been with us. Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Likewise. Thanks a lot. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Joining us in studio now is Guy Bantelman, brother of Neil Bantelman. Uh, of course, uh, in, imprisoned in Indonesia, uh, teacher down there. And, uh, of course, we had Guy on uh, very recently talking about uh, the Prime Minister and his visit to Burlington and what he had to say to the family uh, when he was in town there. We thought we would bring, and again, because we get so much, so many inquirers, uh, inquiries in regard to how this case is progressing when we don't talk about it for a while, uh, you ask questions. So we're bringing Guy in uh, for the hour here and uh, going to recap the whole story story and, of course, uh, bring you up to speed on what has been happening. Guy, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. I hate to take you way back to the beginning of all of this, but give us a, give us a capsulated version of how this all started, how we got to where we are now. Sure. Uh, so Neil is uh, a vice principal at the Jakarta International School, and in late 2014, there were allegations made against uh, six janitors who worked at the school about child assault. The mother uh, brought forward the allegations and, in in addition, sued the school for $25 million U.S. Uh, The school obviously was um, was concerned with the allegations and did their utmost to uh, investigate it and uh, brought the police in, uh, but noted that they wouldn't be dealing with the the lawsuit. Uh, The cleaners actually were not employees of the school. So that progressed, and as that kind of moved through the process, the mother then changed the allegations to include three administrators at the school, my brother, uh, a principal who is a a female, a U.S. citizen, and a teaching assistant who's Indonesian, and increased her lawsuit to $125 million. Because they were employees of the school. Correct. Yeah. Uh, So they have direct, uh, you know, liability at that point. Right. Uh, And that that moved on through late 2014, early 2015. Neil's uh, case was... uh, uh, was tried at a district court level. Uh, Neil was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years, along with his teaching assistant. Uh, we appealed that case, uh, and in August of 2015, Neil was acquitted by a high court, but was uh, required to remain in the country, so he had obviously surrendered his passport at that point. And um, the prosecutor then moved on to appeal the overturning of the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in Feb of 2016 upheld the, um, um, sorry, they dismissed the acquittal and Mm -hmm. uh, re-arrested Neil, and Neil has remained in prison uh, since Feb of 2016. And right now we're working through uh, a judicial review process of the Supreme Court's decision, and obviously there's an enhanced emphasis on a diplomatic solution at the same time. Um, but at this point, uh, that's where the information stops. You don't know anything more beyond that uh, as far as how this legally is going to play out. Right. You're the, still waiting. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, how's Neil doing? Uh, Neil's doing well. He, uh, I, I think this was his toughest year. Uh, there was definitely a, a low in his, his, his emotional state, his, his mental state as we move through kind of May of... 2017. And I I think it was a combination of several things. Literally everybody who's been involved with this case from day one has moved on. They've either got new positions, uh, their contracts have ended, they've left Indonesia. And that includes school staff. uh, That includes um, government uh, individuals, people who worked at the embassy. Um, So that's tough. So those people are all moving on. You've got to get new people involved in the case. 
And, um, it, you know, it was his third year. He celebrated another birthday mm. at the end of May. And, and that always is uh, one of those times where you've got your birthday combined with the end of school year. So those people Everybody's that have been leaving. there su- support you. And he can't. Um, uh, worried because of this change of staff that this will change anything? I mean, I'm sure the new staff well aware of what's been happening in the past. But other than psychologically, do, is this a setback in any way? No, I, I think we, we have to manage Neil differently through times like that. Right. Again, we engage with Neil almost on a daily basis to make sure he's aware of what's going on with the family here. And again, he's he's very engaged in this whole uh, the whole process when it comes to the judici- judicially how this is going to work. Uh, diplomatically, what's going to happen. And again, he wants to see progress. He said to me recently, you know, as long as I say a little process, that's okay. I, mm. I, I just, but I need to continue to see that process. What about conditions for him uh, while being incarcerated? What, what, what's that like? Uh, we've tried to make Neil as safe and as, as comfortable as possible. And that continues on, you know, he, uh, he's got some good respect, uh, within the prison. I, I think there are a lot of people that kind of see the case, you know, and again, I'm not going to turn to other people that are mm-hmm. you know convicted and try and get their opinion, say they're the right opinion, but right. regardless, he, he, he is well respected from that perspective. Are you concerned of his safety at all? Uh, I'm always concerned, but again, we've done what's, what's necessary to make sure he's kept safe. Uh, so let's bring everybody up to speed with what happened last week and the Prime Minister uh, being in town, and obviously you got a chance to meet with him. Yeah, so this is my the third opportunity I've had to meet with the Prime Minister. He was in Burlington to announce um, a, a federal jobs initiative and took the time to meet myself and my mom and um, uh, Janet and my kids. And Is, is that difficult? to arrange when he's coming through? Is that just a natural, he would touch w- touch base with you on uh, this? How, how does that happen? Uh, you've got to be proactive. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, so you knew it, he was coming through. It was, we, we literally turned on the TV in the morning, we saw a little tagline that Trudeau was going to be there. Really? Uh, I started making some calls, sending some emails, and said, this has got to happen, and within two hours, we had it arranged, sort of thing. Wow. And it, it's, it's kind of surreal. Yeah. And... Um, and that must give you confidence knowing the impact of the case and and this has his attention. Yeah, he was he was very uh, responsive. His office was very responsive. And, and literally, you, know, you walk in, people, when you get there, they know who you are. You know, you're kind of shuffled off into this area. You're kind of kept by yourself. And then, you know, you move into a private room and there's – and – as much as I think Canada is a different place from the U.S. and you see Secret Service in the U.S., you know, you're in an area that there are Secret Service. There are guys mm-hmm. with, you know, long long guns there to protect them. And mm-hmm. uh, it gets, it does get very surreal. Um, wow. But, um, again, we had about 15 minutes with him privately. And uh, he's very personable and knows about the case. Uh, again, he's very passionate about it, being, you know, a son, being... Uh, a brother being a teacher, mm. uh, and he he yeah. truly believes in mm. the case. Um, he he believes in it from Neil's perspective. He believes it f- uh, in terms of Canadians and what can what and can, and how Canadians should expect to be treated as they move around this world. Uh, did did you uh, again? Very personable guy, and 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 great in scenarios like that, did you get the feeling that this had weight? Did you get the feeling that he he's honestly going to try to move mountains for you? I, honestly, I, I, I do. And mm. I, I think, you know, regardless of your political stripes mm. and, and what you feel is kind of going on from that perspective, this is a personal relationship that you have to drive with someone and you've got to believe in them. Um, again, as I said, this is the third opportunity I've had to meet with him. Uh, we talked, you know, he talks very passionately about the case. He, um, 
uh, he was in New York for the UN General Assembly meetings in September. He had a direct conversation with the Indonesian delegation there. Uh, he was, from what I understand, very forceful, um, and forceful to a point that was beyond diplomacy, but really stating the case for mm-hmm. Neil mm-hmm. and, and getting the Indonesians to understand. You know that this is this is an issue that is not going to go away. The Canadian government is going to do what's necessary to bring Neil home. That being said, they have their judicial process. Um, now that he is more involved, does that say those options are coming to an end, coming to a close? Uh, now that uh, it appears that that's happening, what can diplomacy do? Well, I, I think once you move, is you it, know, a, is it a, does 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 he become a bargaining chip? How, how do you do this? I, yeah, I, I think that's that's part of it. You know, diplomacy is all about what are they going to get, what are we going to get. Yeah. It's, it's like any negotiation, yeah. and you got to go into it looking at things like you know what does can what's the Canadian relationship with the Indonesians like you know where does it suffice them from a uh, an economic point of view what does it do uh, when it comes to something like the Indonesians wanting a, a non-temporary seat uh, at the UN you know how does that work yeah. and making sure uh, that we support them where we need to support them and how how Canada can support them and then in turn what can the Indonesians do to solve Neil's case do, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, but is it a case of one diplomat saying to another, you know, this doesn't look good? Right. And that you need to fix this. Yeah, and I think... I mean, when, when, it come, when push comes to shove, is this what we're talking about? Yeah. I, I think it's perception on the world stage. Yeah. Um, it's who does Indonesia want to be uh, at the end of the day? Uh, y- you know, you look at the, uh, the G7, you know, those are the s- seven most pow- powerful countries in the world. And then what's that chasm between those seven and the next 20? Mm. And ironically, in university, I actually took a course about is Canada the, the smallest of the top seven or is it the largest of the next 130, <laughs> which is an interesting debate. Yeah. And we had, to write, we had to write a paper on it. But that chasm is massive between those two groups. So how do you get to the top to kind of close that and how can Canada help there? Uh, if they, when they start these negotiations, is this admission that, what does this say about their ju- judicial system and how do they save face there? Because basically this will have run the course, then you bring in the diplomats. What, what does that say about their system? Does that make them look inward? Is that a positive or a negative? I think first off, you, you, you have to leave that alone. Yeah. It's not an issue to be debated. You can't you know, we sit around at the dinner table sometimes and talk about, show us the evidence that you have. And that's not an area, that's not an issue to be discussed or brought up. This is, your judicial system did what it did. And it's way different. That's right. Rule of law is very different. Yeah, Yeah, let it go. And how do we then say, okay, what other resolutions do we have? And this is diplomatic, diplomatically, how do we resolve this case so that there's a benefit to Indonesia and there's a, obviously the benefit to Canada or to Neil. What do you say to those who have said, you know, he went through all these different layers of the law, he's been convicted, that's it, that's all, there's, he's guilty. Right. I, I think the biggest challenge we have being North Americans is that when you get to, to court, the police have done their due diligence, the investigation's gone on, there is, there is physical evidence, there's medical evidence. None of that exists in Neil's in Neil's case, mm-hmm. and you can say, well, you know, it, it it exists here, and this is how we judge, you know, innocence or guilt. That is the case, but that's not the case 
in another country when it comes to their judicial system. There are other rules, there's other factors that impact it. Uh, it's it's hard for us as Canadians or North Americans to get our, our head wrapped around that because, again, you believe you're you know, deemed guilty, mm-hmm. um, so you must be guilty. Mm-hmm. But we all know of cases where, you know, someone's on death row perhaps, you know, there's someone fights them because yeah. the DNA doesn't work. There are those those challenges. But again, I think it's something that we just don't comprehend because it's not a legal system, a judicial system that we're used to. So you almost have to accept their decision and then move on and try something else. Correct. As opposed to, no, you're wrong. Look at it from my point of view. Yeah, we are, we're not going to win the argument anymore about you made the wrong decision when it came to trying Neil. And despite evidence of corruption there in other scenarios, what have you, that doesn't draw any more attention to this or your brother's case. No, I, I Look, think... Look, there was, you know, issues there. There must be here. Yeah, I, I think the most successful solution to this will be, you know, not, not ignore it, but don't acknowledge it. Let's mm-hmm. move in another direction where we are focused on diplomatically, how do we solve this? You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Guy Bantelman is with us in studio, a brother of Neil Bantelman. And, of course, we were talking to him last week in regard to uh, the Prime Minister's visit to Burlington and, of course, the Bantelman family receiving a visit from the Prime Minister uh, in regard to, uh, of course, uh, Neil's case and moving it forward. A couple of questions we have here. Uh, Will Neil apply for financial compensation from Canada? We're hearing about the whole Omar Cotter thing and what have you. Uh, A lot of people are asking questions like this. Yeah, it, I'm uh, sure this isn't your priority at this point, but yeah, no. Obviously, getting Neil home back in Canada is mm-hmm. priority number one, and uh, we'll deal with other issues later on. I, I, I think you know, from first blush and a high level, the, the challenge you run into there is how the government was potentially complicit in dealing with some of those other cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government overall has not been that integral in terms of what Neil has had to go through. It's, uh, you know, what's been applied against Neil by a a sovereign foreign nation. Mm -hmm. uh, And the government's done, you know, a a lot of good work. And there's a lot of things that we can't talk about, obviously, because uh, it would uh, be disruptive to the case right now. But they have been, you know, supportive. And uh, again, we'll we'll deal with that. Is this apples and oranges then, as far as comparing it to those other cases? I I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, But Uh, interesting how that comes up, though. uh, I'm asked. Why do you think uh, that is? Uh, and you are asked about this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'm asked about it. Um, I, again, I think people see cases and uh, they, you know, I, again, I'm not going to comment on the other cases out there. They read the facts about those cases. They look at Neil, you know, they believe in Neil's innocence. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, say, look at a person who's had three, three and a half years of their life taken away. Uh, so far, and you know, there should be some sort of compensation. Another interesting question from a listener: What about being transferred to a Canadian prison to serve out the rest of his sentence? Uh, great question. We've actually looked at that. Uh, we've looked at even something like a, a prisoner exchange, mm-hmm. and uh, there is no prisoner exchange uh, uh, treaty with the Indonesians at this point. Uh, not that it couldn't be done as a one-off, uh, but it is something that we've we've looked at from that perspective. Hmm. Uh, that being said, how would uh, Canadian prisons handle it once he got here? Would that play in? Would that factor into this at all? Because do they want to hand him over if Canada sets him free? I mean, which? Yeah, and I, again, I think it's the way that you would set that up ahead of time. Because yeah. again, I think that is a diplomatic type of yeah. uh, scenario. Mm. And again, when I run it through in my mind, if the Indonesians could 
deport Neil. You know, you're getting rid of somebody who's yeah. been convicted of these heinous crimes. He's no longer a burden on your society. You're saving face. There's there's a lot of good ways to get that done. Yeah. Um, and again, we've had those discussions with with the Canadian government, how our judicial system potentially would handle that. Even things So like, would this all be part of the diplomacy, perhaps, that's going on right now? It could be. Because yeah. I, I will tell you, you know, if, and, you know, not if, when Neil is allowed to return home, you know, the last thing I want is CBSA at the airport holding him up mm. for something yeah. because that comes up. And, and yeah. we've had those conversations. Mm. Uh, another question, has uh, Canada Charter of Rights violated and failed Neil? Has the Charter of Rights violated and failed Neil? I don't believe so. Again, I think that's a great legal question to go through. The The one thing it's opened my eyes to, and I think a lot of the people around me uh, are, you know, as a Canadian, once you leave sovereign Canadian uh, land, you really are under the jurisdiction of whatever country you go to. And the Canadian Charter uh, obviously protects you within Canada and protects your rights if those are um, affected by actions of the government. Um, I don't think that's that's you know particularly something that's happened in mm-hmm. this case. Um, but uh, you know, if if the Canadian government had done something detrimental to Neil, I think that could could play into it. Another interesting question: uh, listener wants to know how people can help. Specifically, this person happens to be traveling to in- Indonesia in the next week. Wants to know if there's anything people can do in any way to help. Uh, again, uh, reaching out to your local MP, uh, sending a letter showing your support and your belief in Neil and, and requesting the government continue to do as much as possible to uh, to solve the situation, try and resolve it diplomatically. Uh, when you're in Indonesia, if, you know, if you're in Bali or if you're in Jakarta, uh, you know, taking a trip to the Canadian Embassy and saying hello and you mm-hmm. know, reiter- reiterating. And again, I would also thank them for the work they're doing. You know, they, they do a lot of stuff for Neil on a regular yeah. basis. Uh, this sounds like an odd question, but, uh, how many more cases are there like Neil's? Uh, at any given time, there are 2,200 Canadians incarcerated anywhere in the world. Uh, probably 90% of those are, you know, a drunken bar fight or car accident or something in some sort of, uh, uh, foreign nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, you know, probably two or 300 that are, that are like that, that someone's incarcerated. You know, we've seen, uh, um, the individual who was incarcerated in Iran, the the, the professor from yeah. uh, from Montreal. We've seen the um, the minister from Mississauga who was incarcerated mm. in North Korea. And again, very difficult situations. Uh, but positively, a lot of good work that the Canadians have done to resolve these uh, diplomatically. You'd think if they can get people from <laughs> areas like that. We can get someone out of Indonesia. That's right. Uh, Bob Ray, Miramar, heading down there, seeing what he can do. Uh, any chances he'll cross paths with? We've uh, we've raised that issue with the government, and uh, obviously he's a great emissary for for Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important that that we have you know former leaders in this country. Uh, re- again, uh, regardless of political stripes, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. can go and are respected in other nations and can raise this case. You know, uh, you know, Mr. Ray is traveling, obviously, to uh, to that area to deal with the uh, Rohingya refugee crisis and uh, great emissary. And I think, it, again, it's the role that Canada plays in the world. And if if he can, you know, hopefully raise Neil's case when he's there uh, as an aside, we'd be uh, we'd be grateful for that. Uh, apples and oranges when you're looking when you're looking at things like the Omar Cotter case and such. That being said, we seem to be more sensitive to this than we have been in the past. That must make you feel positive. Yeah, there. Uh, 
I, again, I think it comes to some of the successes that we've had. I think it comes to um, what we see as right and wrong in the world today. Mm-hmm. And, there uh, certainly seems to be more political involvement now than there was at any time in this case. Absolutely. Is that just me or? No, I, I think this is a case. And that's because the judicial system has to run its course. Yeah, I, I think the government's kind of sat back and they've waited for, you know, the right decision to be made. And I think they're as dumbfounded as we are when it comes to how long this has gone on for and that you get to these different levels of government and, or sorry, of the judicial system and it hasn't been resolved. Um, they've bided their time. They've done what was necessary to allow the Indonesians to work through their process. They've tried not to Im- influence that, um, but they're. I think they're getting frustrated with how long this is taking. Other media is picking up on this at all. Yeah, you know, we see articles, you know, around the world. We've got we got lots of coverage in North America. Obviously, uh, there is some uh, coverage from some of those uh, some of the more. Uh, Democratic countries in uh, in Southeast Asia, you know, Australia. There's there's a lot of how are they it. spinning it? How are they presenting this? Uh, well, it's interesting because it comes on the heels of some other controversial cases in Indonesia. You know, the, the Bali Nine. You know, that was mm. the, it affected a lot of citizens of other countries. Uh, so that's got a got a got a big play from that perspective. And again, um, you know, wanting to include as many countries in the world at at this level that that we deem as democratic, um, it's, it, it leads to more input into their system. Mm-hmm. Um, so more eyes looking at them. Yeah. They, you know, they want to be included in the upper echelons of powerful nations in the world. They want to be included in G in G summits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're going to do that, then, then other countries, I think want to see a legal system, um, that is, equatable somehow, a rule of law that's equatable to what we're used to. Mm. And again, maybe that's not democratic overall because we're almost imposing our will on them, but we're almost saying like, this is what we expect if you want to be in, in this club. Uh, where do you go from here? Wh- how, how do you, what do you hang on to at this point? Uh, you know, I hang on to, you know, the prime minister, you know, whispering my, in my ear and, and reassuring me, um, you know, he's been very, very positive. Uh, it's the it's the literally the daily conversations I have with global affairs and and my you know the individual who deals with our case there. Um, it's the follow up conversations and meetings we've had um, definitely over the last three or four months. And again, I think the UN General Assembly was a great opportunity to, to deal with the Indonesians face to face. The upcoming APEC uh, meeting in Vietnam in the middle of November is going to be another opportunity. And again, the Canadian any Canadian contingent does not address Indonesians without bringing up this case. Mm. And they've been adamant there. Uh, So you're confident that this is moving forward. You're confident you're not at the point where, boy, a lot of people have puffed up my wings, but I'm still not flying here. Yeah, no, I, I am. I am confident in what they're doing. I, I'm the first one, and my my family will agree that I get frustrated at this and I get angry at, at some of the time it takes. And you know, when you start putting it into term, you know, Neil went into prison as a 45 year old man. He's going to come out much closer to 50. Mm. And you know, when you start putting it in those perspective and and the time of his life that he's he's missing, you know, with our family back home, that's frustrating. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, you know, I remember very early on in this process, I, I did a radio uh, segment and someone said, well, how do you know he's not guilty? And I thought, wow, like, you know, how could my brother be guilty of these heinous crimes? And, you know, I've never for one second had a doubt about that, but I'm sure there are people that 
that do just because of what you you asked previously. You know what? They went through a judicial process or a legal process. They found them guilty on several different uh, at different times. But again, I I still have you know put out the challenge. Just just show me one piece of evidence. One, yeah. not ten. One. And you know you don't have it from a medical perspective, from a physical perspective. You don't have any corroborating witnesses. You know, you just don't have anything that makes any sense in this case. How do you feel when people ask you those questions? Uh, before I used to feel really angry, mm-hmm. uh, but now I feel like I have to be that voice that says just that. Be that voice of rational. Listen to what they're saying. You, you can't dismiss people. Do you because, feel like you're yelling and no one's hearing you? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Um, but again. You know, I believe in my heart, I believe in all the support that we've got, you know, around the world, that people just don't raise the issue of his guilt, or 95% of the, of the population doesn't. Uh, another question about the colleagues that uh, were also one specific, a teacher's assistant, anything more on those people? That no, it's, um, so the teaching assistant, um, Neil's case and Ferdy's case run in parallel, but they're two distinct separate cases, they're identified separately. Um, there will be some challenges. Well, if one is free, will the other? It just doesn't necessarily mean that, does it? No, and that and that's part of the challenge you yeah. run into. And again, you say, well, Neil should do better in that case because you've got a foreign government fighting for him, but then you've got a foreign government that has, or you've got a, a, an Indonesian government that's got to release a foreigner, but not a, a national. Mm. Um, so, you know, and who does... Gonna have, he's going to have to pack Ferdy in a suitcase on the way <laughs> out. I mean, geez. Like, it, honestly, because he's a citizen, he is, isn't he? He's he is, a citizen. He is. That's, that's, yeah. that's going to be a lot tougher for him. And we've talked about that, you know, how yeah. to, you know, do we figure it out so that we can get Ferdy out and relocate to another country? How does that work? Wow. Uh, the six cleaners, again, you know, they... Uh, Again, society and the socioeconomic scale, you know, it's its where they fall, unfortunately, and I hate to be negative. They, they have a massive support network. You know, these are six individuals that were essentially the main breadwinners in their families. Mm. Um, and we've it's been set up now that there's contributions so that their salary is being replaced by contributions. So the, their families have continued to be able to live and survive. They're still in jail, unfortunately. Um, but again, I think you know, maybe selfishly get Neil home and we can work on, continue to work on this, you know, yeah. from Canadian shores. Uh, it's, it's, um, do you think if, I should say if, when Neil comes home, do you think that this will be spun in Indonesia that, yeah, we've deported him, we've gotten rid of him, st- he's still guilty as far as, as we're concerned? Or do you think this will be, oh, no, it looks like we made a mistake and you're free to go? Yeah, do you no, think I, they'll admit they'll, their downfall? Yeah, no, I think they will continue to leave it as, you know, this individual is guilty. We ran him through the judicial system. We've got several levels of our judiciary that have, have noted him as guilty. Um, you know, we were able to deport this individual who was a burden on society and, and had, you know, caused these heinous crimes. Uh, but we did what was right for Indonesia. What does that mean? What would that mean for Neil's reputation? I mean, you know, he's out, he's back here or wherever he decides to go. How does he pick up? Yeah, we've, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, you know, Neil... Obviously, there's a tremendous book and story here, but, you know, <laughs> what does he want to do? Yeah. Does he think about life after this? We, we have these musings once in a while where we can just, you know, quietly chat with each other and we talk about, you know, speaking or, you know, the book or the movie or whatever that looks like. And I, I think that's something that we'll consider down the road. Uh, Neil obviously has been teaching overseas for seven years. Indonesia was the second country he was in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know there are schools here that will 
hire Neil freely. So I don't, yeah. I don't think that's an issue. Does Neil want to stay in Canada? You know, God, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, At I, least I can't, for a while. Yeah. Mama. <laughs> I, I can't go through that again. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. I, I think Neil's got a great story to tell. Um, you know, Neil is a very uh, thoughtful individual. He's very passionate. I, again, I think, you know, people will be enthralled to hear about his saga at some point. Um, and we'll, we'll move through that. Uh, what about Tracy? How's she doing? Uh, she's well, again, very, very strong individual. She has uh, been, you know, irreplaceable in this whole process. Uh, she still works at the school a couple of days a week. She sees Neil two or three times a week, uh, does a lot of work with the embassy, does a lot of work with the, the legal system. Uh, you know, we talk on a, on a regular basis and, and try and coordinate things as much as possible. Uh, do they ever talk about what they'll do or the first thing they'll do when they leave there? Do they ever talk about that? You know, we've talked about, you know, where's their first point of entry or do we go and meet them somewhere and just have some, you know, a couple of days quietly and, you know, you know, will they come back to, to Burlington or will they go and stop in Calgary first and what does that yeah. look like? And, you know, we, again, I, I, they're all end of the rainbow right, type right. of discussions. And it's, I think it's important because it, it talks about a plan. Yeah. You know, and, literally, literally and it gives in, him something to look forward sure. to. Sure. And yeah. in Burlington, we have a plan. We know the yeah. place. We know the bands are going to play. Uh, <laughs> we just don't have the, you know, the guest of honor. <laughs> Man, that's amazing. Uh, getting somebody sending me a note on a New York Times article. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so the New York Times uh, wrote an article several weeks ago that related to the uh, the judicial system in Indonesia, you know, how it deals with somebody versus dealing with the other. Um, it's, uh, again, it's written by somebody who's offshore. Uh, they're looking at the judicial system and saying, well, it's it's not fair in this case, but it seems, and it's not fair in this case, and it seems to be wrong, and it's fair in this case, and it seems to be wrong also. Uh, so it really does point to the inequalities in the system and the process and how that works. Um, it does cause us challenges because it's it's not it's not the way we think it will work. Hmm. And you know, throughout, and and again, one of the challenges we face, and I say to Neil, okay, what's the deadline for this appeal or for this document to be submitted? And he goes, well, you know, when it's submitted. Okay, but in Canada, we're used to you got thirty days. Yeah, and yeah. that's challenging. Yeah, yeah. Um, are how do you handle the false hopes? Because we've talked about this for an awful long time now, mm-hmm. uh, and there's been little bright spots that oh, this looks good, this looks good, that, and, and then only to be disappointed. How do you keep moving forward with that, especially sure. after meeting with the prime minister? Yeah, again, the, the, the simple answer is you have to. You, yeah. ca- you can't go great. He's got it. You know, I'm gonna you know take two weeks off and and not answer my phone or not deal with you know media mm-hmm. or interviews or whatever that is. Uh, you've got to take every day as it comes. Um, you know, somebody asked a while, you know, how does this affect your life? And and, and I, my answer, and I, I think the answer is almost hollow to a point, it's it's like breathing. Yeah. It is. I don't remember a time in my life that this wasn't part of my life. Yeah. And you wake up every morning, you go to sleep every night, you're thinking about it. You know, I talk to Neil, you know, very, very frequently. Um, and we have a plan. We're talking about these things. And there's always this, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to do this. Who's working on that? You know? Oh, you know, and the, again, the Trudeau thing, you know, I got up last Thursday morning, I wasn't meeting the prime minister. Mm. Uh, and it just, it's something that happened and boom, it became your day. So uh, it, it seems almost uh, silly to ask, but timeline, what do you, how do you look forward on this? Or do you just, have you, have you given up with timelines? Uh, no. So for the fourth Christmas, I'm going to say he's going to be home by Christmas. Yeah. Um, my, uh, and for the fourth time, I'll say, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, again, right now, I, I'm working in kind of a 
a two-week block. You know, APEC is our focus at this point. Right, right. And after APEC, there's one more kind of Pan-Asian summit coming up, uh, you know, in the Philippines, I believe, or maybe it's even before that. Um, but after that, you know, you're g- getting into, you know, U.S., you know, Thanksgiving, the holidays, and, you know, you're into the new year. Um, so, you know, we'll work in this two this two week block. And again, we've got the school semester ending in Indonesia. So you've got all those people leaving again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like summer where they're gone for a couple of months. Right. Um, so right now we'll, we'll work on those next two weeks and we'll, we'll go from there. How big a deal will this be when he is free? Oh man, I, I don't think I, I mean, do. <laughs> over, and, over, and, over and above your family, but yeah. even from a Canadian issue. Yeah, th- th- this is this will be a headline story. Yeah, I, I think it will be. I think we need to we will manage it. Um, I, I don't I don't dream that good right now. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know we'll get there. Um, you know I can't I can't even picture. You know, are you amazed how, how big this has become? I'm amazed how big it's become. I'm amazed how long it's gone on. I'm amazed at the worldwide support, and I think it's. A combination of the people that completely believe in Neil's story. I think it's part of who Neil is and all the friends and associates he's made over the, his time. There are things I've learned about my brother that I didn't even know existed. I didn't mm. even know he did, which <laughs> has been kind of an eye-opening experience. Um, but I, I think, you know, from this, you know, getting Neil home and settled and kind of f- figuring out what that, that the next little while is for Neil is important. But the other thing that, that I have become and will become passionate about is about Canadians around this world. Um, when you travel, what what you potentially can get into, what you expect you can do. You know, I think a lot of people believe that you can walk into an office, uh, an MP's office or the government for global affairs, bang on a desk and get a result. That, mm-hmm. that is not the way it is. Mm-hmm. The Canadian government has some parameters about how they deal with you when you travel, what rights you have. Um, that's not set out anywhere. Uh, it's something that I've actually been asked to uh, participate in at a at a consultive uh, level You're with the government. You're an expert now. Oh, I, I, I've, I've lived it, so I'm a good case study for sure. Yeah. Um, and, that, and you're interested in that, right? You're interested in helping other people do this. Yeah. I, again, you know, we've taken actually, you know, from a, you know, a, a private side, I've taken on some cases with, uh, with an individual who's got over 30 years experience. And we're, you know, some interesting, like we've got a, a U.S. citizen who's in Shanghai right now, and they approached us to try and help him, which I think is interesting. Wow. Um, but, you know, a case wow. that parallels Neil. Um, but again, I, I think we as Canadians need to be aware. Travel the world's you know an amazing place, but know what you're getting into. It's and mm. it's not it's not always Canada. Uh, one last quick question: How's your relationship with your brother changed since this started? I talk to him more often, ironically. <laughs> um, you know, before <laughs> more used, than you want to. <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to talk to him once a week, and we'd get caught yeah. up, and then I'd be you know jealous of you know what are you doing this weekend, guy? And I was yeah. going to Niagara Falls, yeah. and he was going to Thailand for the yeah. weekend, sort of thing. <laughs> um, but you know, I you know I tell him I love him at the end of every phone call, and yeah. uh, you know that's important. And uh, but the issues that were there before, I'm an A type personality. He's a B. Um, I get frustrated because I ask him a question, he doesn't. He, doesn't give the answer I want, the right answer. But, you know, but... Yeah, brotherly it, stuff. It, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. You know, the guy used to, you know, punch in the face, you know, <laughs> at home. So, yeah. Guy Bandleman has been with us, brother of Neil Bantleman, of course, uh, hoping that the diplomacy works. And, uh, of course, uh, brother Neil back home in Burlington or wherever he chooses to be. Thank you so much again for coming in and sharing the time and updating us all and uh, keep in touch. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
Uh, I'd like to introduce you to 14-year-old Hannah Elper. She is a blogger, author, activist, motivational speaker, ambassador with We, uh, We Day, and uh, Me to We Speaker. Uh, all of a sudden, I feel very, very inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're awesome. I mean, you're doing something that you love. That's awesome. Yeah, it, that, that's very, very true. Uh, Hannah, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Of course. And I should also, should I say who he is or do you want do to get out of it? You really? You want, to, you want him dragging on your, on your coattails here? Uh, whatever you want. This is your show. <laughs> uh, Hannah is the daughter of Eric Elper. And Eric, of course, a music publicist who's been on the show many times talking about various things uh, musical. Uh, so, Hannah, talk about – I've got a book in my hand. It's, it's called uh, Momentous Small Acts, Big Change. Uh, before before we get to this, how did this all start for you? Yeah, when I was nine years old, I went to a conference that was all about digital safety, and I decided to start a blog. My dad has a, my dad has a blog, and he had a blog, and I was just like, oh, I'm going to start a blog. And all I knew was that I loved animals, and I had to write about something I was passionate about, and I knew that I loved animals. So my parents introduced me to issues like environmental destruction and deforestation and whatever and I was I became really devastated and passionate about it but instead of feeling helpless and just sort of passing it on and being like oh well um I decided to do something about it and I didn't think I'm too young I started a blog in hopes that I could inspire other people to make their own difference so what was the blog like what did you talk about what did you yeah well at the time I talked about how we can all be eco-friendly Um, Mm -hmm. and how we can all help the environment and help the animals. But then ever since then, my issues have really grown to include um, poverty, education, homelessness, mental health, LGBTQ issues, anti-bullying, youth empowerment, and so much more. But I really advocate both online and offline that anyone can make a difference. And that's what I do all the time. So this just started as a blog and just kind of yeah. took off from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I believe that everyone has a gift that they can use to make a difference, um, that everyone has a skill that they can bring to the table. Mine is public speaking and writing, and I love doing it. And, and I'm really proud that I get to share my message and my passions. Do you ever get nervous? Yeah, I do. I, I definitely get nervous every time I I'm go out on stage. I'm nervous now just being on the show. Well, exactly. And I mean, when I'm when I'm going out on stage in front of like 20,000 people at We Day, this event where young people come together to make a difference, I go on stage and my legs are shaking. But then <laughs> I had the opportunity to travel with Mar- Martin Luther King III, who's Martin Luther King Jr.'s eldest oh. son. And I talked to him and I was like, so I'm nervous. And I was 10 at the time. And I was so nervous. What, what's your advice for me? And he said, well, nerves are like adrenaline. And that adrenaline is excitement. If you're not nervous, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. So I always just remember that. And the nerves aren't a bad thing. So I just, you, you just keep doing How what you How did you meet him? Uh, he was on the We Day tour with me. And so we were traveling across North America together, which was the most amazing that thing. That must I have got, been an incredible experience. Yeah, and it was so interesting because I spoke at like the after party events and whatever as well. And so he was all speaking out there and I got to hang out with him. And whenever he talks about Martin Luther King Jr., he was just like, well, my dad always said, and it's just, just his dad, you know, the mm. voice of civil rights. But my just, dad. But just his dad. Just his dad. And he's yeah. incredible and such a really strong voice for civil rights. Where, where, do you, how, where does the passion come from? Um, My parents are definitely a big part of that. They've really introduced me to different issues over the years. Mm -hmm. And they've, uh, I mean, my mom sends me stuff on Facebook all the time about different issues so that I can get inspired about them. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's also just, 
I know that the world needs us to help. I think that it's our duty as citizens to make a difference. And I mean, why not do it? It's rewarding. It's fun. It's not a chore. And why not help? Why not make a better future for my generation and for the generations to come? Uh, what do the other kids at school say? Um, last about year, all this, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you're looking like you're looking I'm like different. you're ready to run. I'm, you're you're yeah. ready to run for prime minister here, and th- you know, honestly, so like I'm watching Justin Trudeau on the screen here, and his job <laughs> is very difficult. Yeah. So I don't know if I would want to be prime minister, but it's. I obviously don't have friends that do what I do um, at school. I have a lot of friends that are passionate about making a difference outside of school. But last year, people were definitely negatively judging what I was doing. Uh, But that's okay because maybe they they weren't, they're not at that stage yet. I always Uh, have that word in me, yet. Uh, But now I'm in high school. I just got in high school and I love it. People are so supportive of everything. High school is a totally different animal, too. Yes, it's so weird. Like I got into it and I was, it's it's a completely different world. And I love it, though. There's always room for everybody at high school, no matter the clique, no matter the group, no matter. Everyone has different interests. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So uh, how did you get involved with WE? Yeah, so when I was I was uh, nine, my mom and I was looking online for eco-friendly cleaning supplies to put a recipe for on my blog. And I saw this boy named Mark Kielberger, and he was in grade seven, and he made his own eco-friendly cleaning supplies for a science project, and it was it became really big. And I found out that this kid, Mark Kielberger, uh, was the co-founder of the We Movement. Tell everybody what that is, so yes. some don't know. Yeah, so We makes doing good doable, and it's really all about kids helping kids. Mm-hmm. They believe that education is the key to success. They work in countries like Kenya and India and Haiti and really... Um, countries in countries that are in need and they provide education and water and food and health and opportunity to them and it's all all of these actions are done by kids by Mm -hmm. youth and so it's really all about kids helping kids I was really inspired by it when I first learned about it because I learned that I wasn't alone Mm. and making difference because in grade four I didn't know anybody that was doing what I was doing but here there was this whole organization. Don't of you youth. A- don't you ask the question? Why aren't you guys doing what I'm doing? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's because they maybe haven't been exposed to it. Right. I think that's part of it, and I think that it's really important that as parents and as adults that like we sh- that you guys should really educate like your kids on what's going on in the world because that's what's going to get them to motivate people. And I, it, but it's okay because if people aren't motivated yet, I say yet. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, okay. they haven't talked to you right, yet. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, but, the, but then they just need to find, they just need to be exposed to it and be educated. But there are so many young people that are making a difference, and I feature so many of them in Momentous. Uh, what's it like for you? And in, in the Wii days, they have a great big massive gathering where everybody yeah. comes into large stadiums. So talk about that experience. Yeah, so Wii Day is an event where young people come together, and every single one of them has made a difference. You can't buy your ticket to Wii Day. You earn it through service. Right. And it's incredible being on stage because I'm I'm really proud to sort of be like a voice for those people. And it must be amazing just to go to this event, let alone stand right? up and, and address yes. everybody. When I went for the first time, I felt something that I had never felt before because it was all young people who had made a difference. And I was so I'm so honored to be in the presence of them every time because all of these young people have done incredible things from building schools to raising awareness about issues that they that they that they're passionate about. I'm honestly so honored to be in the presence of them, let alone actually like speaking to them. Talk about the book. Yeah. Um, so it basically it grew out of the idea that anyone can make a difference, no matter how young or old you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter where you live, 
you can make the world a better place. It's just simply that. And it's also that the small actions that we take, the tangible acts, add up to big change. The all, Most of the people that have made a difference in the world, you think of anybody, and it didn't start off with a big revolutionary idea. And the third thing is that it's really, we have to do it together. We have to make a difference together as a community. And so it's sort of proving that in the book, but also sharing stories of my role models and people who have created big change. And hopefully they'll be inspired by that. How did the book come about? How did you get the idea for this? So you basically yeah. want to share everybody else's story who's inspired you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I include 19 of my role models, people like Lily Singh, who's an incredible YouTuber. Uh, Lily Collins, Craig and Mark Kielberger, who are the co-founders of We, incredible people that have really found their issue, have found their gift, and are doing something to make the world a better place. And I'm just really honored to share their stories. And I was, it was very surreal to interview them. And I mean, interviewing someone like Malala Yousafzai, who is a, a, the most powerful education advocate, is incredible. Where do you want to take this? Yeah, uh, I want to be a journalist. I want to definitely go. Oh, you got to aim higher than that. You got to aim higher than that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I will be the president. Not that I'm biased here in any way. I will be the president. If you're my kid, I'd be going. No, no, go farther, go farther. I'll be the president of CTV. Okay, that's worth it. Or or CNN. There you go. Uh, Now, uh, is that just something new that you've come up with, or is that something that because this could change a lot? I've, I've always loved writing, but. It was only a year ago I did, uh, as my dad was saying, I did start watching the newsroom about a year and a half ago, and I saw how busy it was. And I, my worst fear is that I'm going to be stuck in a room like a cubicle yeah. from not with a nine to five job, and that's it, and like I never getting out of the office. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and so like I don't, and I think that that being a journalist is something where you never know what's going to happen and you really discover new stories and on the newsroom and on the west wing which is a show that i also watch it's just it's very busy and i mean i've had the opportunity to go uh to really like go to the ctv offices Mm -hmm. and i just i really want to inform people on what's going on in the world uh plus you know um our occupations change so much throughout time yeah. i mean that may be where you I start or finish so i mean you know in the old days you'd start at one job and go for and stay that for life that's not necessarily oh the case i mean yet. i thought i was going to be a veterinarian when i was little but then i learned what veterinarians actually do and i just <laughs> no <laughs> what about politics I think that it's a very difficult job. I, I've seen the stuff that they have to do and I, it's very difficult so that doesn't intrigue you yeah. in any way no and also i i I've had the opportunity to hang out a lot with Martin Sheen, yeah. who is a very big actor, and he also yeah. is an activist, and he played the president on the West yes. Wing. And I asked him- I love Martin I, I, I know. Yeah. And I asked him, like, what's better, being an activist or being a politician? And he said being an activist, because there's no jurisdiction. Yeah. You're, you're free Get to more talk done. about any issues, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Whereas yeah. a politician, you have, you, you're supposed to focus on only a couple of issues, and- like I said, it's a very hard job. I mean, he they, they have to be very careful with what they say, and you do with as an activist, but even more so as a politician. And it's just, I feel like it would be very stressful. You know what? As a journalist, you're supposed to, although in this yeah. capacity, not necessarily the case because I'm a commentator, but if you're a journalist, yeah. you sort of have to provide you know, oh, the yeah. unbiased view, not necessarily what your view would be. I think is, that's going to that, be the most difficult is part Is that possible job. for Hannah, or is it I more think, a commentary role? I think it's definitely like going... I think it's definitely possible. I don't really know what I want to do. Mm. I would love to be either like a chaser who looks for the stories and then calls the people and are like, hi, we love your story. We want to do an interview with you. 
or be an associate producer, which is basically telling people what to do um, and actually organizing the whole thing, or being an anchor, which I like talking, and so that would help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, the the active is the activism part going to mm-hmm. pull you yes. away from that? Because I mean, you know, you look at what's what's in here. That's mm-hmm. that's that's a different sort. I think of, I can connect it. Yeah. I I, yeah. I think that I can connect being an activist and the issues that I'm passionate about with being a journalist and I'm never going to stop being act- being an activist or being passionate about the issues that I care about. It's just, it's something that's, it's who I am. And so I'm never going to stop that. And if an, a network doesn't like my activism, uh, then you'll find another one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Do you like school? Do you enjoy the school experience? Yes. Yeah. yes. I mean, I haven't been able to, I have been able to be at school as much as I would like to because I am at We Day, yeah. um, talking in front of a lot of people, but I love doing that because you're going to learn passion. more. You're going to learn more doing that. Than well, exactly. It's a better education, but I'm so lucky for the support of my teachers and I'm so grateful for their support. They're so incredible. It's so incredibly supportive and encouraging. What advice do you have for other students, other teenagers? That they can make a difference, that they can make the world a better place. All you need to do is find your issue, that thing that you're passionate about, and then find your gift, your talent. That could be science or music or art or writing or whatever you're good at. And then put those two together and make a difference. Would you like to be a teacher? I think that I would find it very difficult not to... I, I think it would be it would be fun, but also one I'm not good at math, and so that wouldn't be helpful. But it's also the kind of thing where I'm not I I, I would have a hard time not yelling at the kids yeah. if I was frustrated. Like when I get frustrated at someone, I try my best not to like yeah. blow out, but. I, I, I might have a hard, difficult time not. Oh, so. you might be great for the but media. But journalist. I want to be a journalist. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do with my uh, life. Other siblings? I don't. My parents wanted one. They got one. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I have, I have dogs, though. I have do dogs. You? Perfect. So yeah. where do you see yourself in 10 years? So you're 14 now, mm-hmm. 24. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I see myself either being probably working as working at like ctv yeah yeah because i i don't think i would go to cnn right after because i don't know if they would like me then but um i would probably be working at ctv as a a chaser because i don't know if i could be an associate producer at 24 years old right um but if i could that would be awesome uh your dad's in the entertainment business any any interest in that at all um, I think it's really cool. I love music. Yeah. I I'm really mainstream. Like everything that that you yeah. guys play here, I and obviously and obviously exposed to a lot of it through. Your oh yeah, exactly. I go to a lot of concerts, yeah. whatever. I'm really interested in the entertainment business. Um, I don't know. I guess I'll have to figure it out. I don't really know much about careers in the entertainment business, right. yeah. but I've I've gotten to go to a lot of entertainment uh, business uh, stuff like radio yep. and uh, TV and movie sets yep. and whatever. You've been and in all the cool, really cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about all this? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You're now. Yeah, now um, it, it gives I'm me... just sitting here just thinking, holy smokes, can you just rub up against my kids? <laughs> you know what? A lot of people that knew Hannah, that knew me, said, oh, like you must be having a lot to do with this, like pushing her out to the media. Yeah. But you That's and I so both annoying. know that you can you can promote all you want, <laughs> yeah. but if you're not good or great, yeah. nobody's going to buy into it. Yeah. Um, with with Hannah, she, you put her in a room 
at the age of six, <laughs> and she'll be friends with everybody. Like I she, like hanging out with adults more than kids. <laughs> I do. <laughs> She's like a little puppy. Like she'll just be friends with everybody. And when we start, when she started writing the blog and becoming more, um, even more outgoing, it was just an opportunity. It was just an opportunity to keep saying yes to the things that we were being offered. Yeah. Yes, let's go on We Day. We've always let's said yes. Let's go across Canada to 120 schools and bring a tutor with her. Yeah. And because I work in the entertainment industry, I've been around enough people who knew that there is no plan B. Yeah. That yeah. this is what she does. And yeah. as long as she loves to do it, I'm so good with it. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have said to me, like, oh, my God. So your dad has gotten you all these connections, right? And it's... My uh, my parents People have def- always say that. Uh, right, and my parents are, have been very influential in my journey, and yeah. I'm really grateful for their support. Yeah. But it's also like Malala, for example, yeah. her dad was an in- is an incredible educational advocate, and they yeah. they lived in Pakistan, and they were both education advocates. And yes, Ziadin helped get her that blogging role yeah. Yeah. in the BBC. But like my dad said, if Malala wasn't a good writer no, and absolutely. wasn't good at speaking, yeah. she wouldn't have gotten uh, the- she wouldn't have been the most powerful education advocate probably in the world. It must be difficult because most of the kids your age don't have the wherewithal that you do. So that must yeah, be but, difficult in a sense. Um, yeah, but I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible young people across yeah. North America when I've traveled. And these are some amazing kids. And I'm happy to, I've developed friendships with them. I talk to some of them every day and I've developed awesome friends, friendships with them. Um, so uh, that being said... Um, as you move forward with this, how, how, what's your next step with education? Is it just mm-hmm. to keep going? Is it to, to, to actually go towards a, a journalism sort of thing? I mean, mm-hmm. it, has that superseded the cause or is there one cause that you're interested in, whether it's homelessness, whether it's I, this, I whether I think that, that you can be passionate about as many issues as you want. I think you can tackle as many issues as you want. And I think that that's why social media is so great because people don't care if you post about so many issues because that's awesome and i i'm passionate about so many issues um there's a lot that in different ways i'm passionate about i mean in my book i highlight many different issues like poverty and education and homelessness and lgbtq plus issues and all of these issues and i would love to loop that into journalism somehow but i'm definitely going to continue my education are you surprised that other kids aren't as engaged in this stuff as you are no um i think that it's it's okay if kids aren't engaged yeah. in that. I think that a lot of a, a lot of people say that they're like, oh, you know, kids are not not a lot of kids are like you. Does that anger you? And does it doesn't anger me because maybe they just haven't been educated about it. Maybe or they haven't been maybe they haven't yeah. been inspired. Yeah. And so they're I'm they're just waiting for that moment to be inspired. And I have no doubt that they will. But they don't have to do it at nine years old. Yeah. I that was just my that was the moment that my spark was ignited. That doesn't mean that their spark has to be ignited at that time. What do kids say to you, whether it's at a mm-hmm. Wii function or something where you're going out and speaking? What do they say to you when they come up to you? They say that I that, that I inspire them, and that honestly means so much to me when people either comment on my social media or come up to me and they say you inspire me to make a difference, or you inspired me to do a food bank at my school or anything like that it it really it motivates me to keep going and if i can change one heart then my job is complete how do we get the book you so you can get the book as of yesterday you can get it at indigo 
uh, chapters, Amazon shoppers, and I'm really excited about it. You're an author at 14. Yeah, I mean, my dad and I have in the past few days have been like going everywhere to every chapters and just signing all the books. It's been crazy. I love it. Uh, Momentous, small acts, big change. Uh, Hannah Elper is with us. Congratulations. Good luck. Go take the world on. Thank you. You're awesome. (laughs) So are you. Thanks. Eric, uh, thank you so much. What a what a pleasure. Oh, it's always great to be here whenever... Uh, and look, you and I, I get to talk, and nobody in the music industry died. <laughs> That's right? This is, this is, this is a good news Although story. We are close it, enough to Fats Domino, but, you know... We'll uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> as, as my, at the back of my mind would say, there's still time. I'll still be here for another <laughs> right, 10 more minutes. Go. I'll keep my phone on for you. Uh, Hannah Elper has been with us. Momentous, small acts, big change. Check it out. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.